RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. episode, we will be talking about the slightly unusual case of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD. Joining us today on the panel, as with other episodes, we have Alex Haynes. Alex is a barrister at Outer Temple Chambers, specialising in internationally focused matters, including those involving multilateral development banks and other international financial institutions. We are also joined by Paul Kearney, the Enforcement Commissioner at the EBRD, and Rowan Sharp, the Director of Investigations. Welcome to the panel. Hi, Alice. Thank you. Paul, you joined EBRD from a private practice law firm, being a solicitor in both Ireland and, of course, England and Wales, and rose through the ranks of the EBRD from a banking reconstruction and disputes perspective. How have the roles that you've undertaken at the EBRD allowed you to understand the interplay between the different priorities of the EBRD? That's a good question, Alice. I think the main priority of the EBRD is to fulfil its mandate. And we'll come back to the mandate later in the discussion, I hope. But the thing that I've learned from the various roles I've had to play at the bank has been that we're trying to pursue an integrated approach. We're trying to achieve through a whole variety of different means what the mandate requires us to do. Thank you, Paul. And Rowan, you've also come to the EBRD from within a legal framework, albeit of a very different nature. You were involved with the establishment of the UN Development Programme's Investigations and Compliance Function and previously an investigator with the ICTY. How has that experience in those two positions helped you to shape your role as the Director of Investigations at the EBRD? Well, thank you, Alice. Well, first of all, the subject matter was very different and it's been very different throughout my, my career. Investigating war crimes is very different from responding to fraud and corruption in the EBRD program. But an investigation should always have some similar characteristics and facets. All investigations must be fair, they must observe due process, and they must be conducted in a sound manner that is able to withstand challenge. Those skills can be transferable, and I was very lucky to be able to transfer some of those skills in other aspects through to my role at EBRD. Thank you, Rowan. Paul, the EBRD is unique. It has a political mandate. How has this come about? The EBRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, is a multi-regional IFI, or International Financial Institution. And it's about 30 years old in May, having been established in 1991. And it's currently owned by 69 countries and the EU and the EIB, the European Investment Bank. And uniquely amongst the IFIs, it has a political mandate, and that mandate was a response to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the mandate has two aspects to it, maybe three, depending how you count them. The what aspect of the mandate is what's it meant to do, and it's meant to help its members achieve transition towards a market-oriented economy and to promote private and entrepreneurial initiative. And then the where aspect of the mandate has two halves. Where, as in what type of countries, it's meant to do this in countries which are committed to and applying the principles of multi-party democracy, pluralism, and market economics. And then the second aspect of where is that the EBRD has a geographic focus. So there are particular areas within the world where it's meant to do that. Suffice it to say that there is a geographical scope to its activities. So Paul, Given this background, how exactly does the bank go about achieving this political mandate? Through a combination of three things. One is investment, one is policy dialogue, and the third is technical assistance. In terms of size, EBRD has a 30 billion euro capital base and a triple A 
rating. Its cumulative investments to date are in the region of 150 billion euros. Last year, it did about 11 billion euros worth of business across about 411 projects with investments in 37 countries. Most of the business is in loans. There's some equity. There's also some guarantee and trade facilitation and advisory work. Most of the work is in the private sector, maybe about four-fifths, with about one-fifth being in the sovereign sector. Thank you, Paul. During this series, we've spoken about the fiduciary duty of the various multilateral development banks. What is the EBRD's fiduciary duty and how does it shape the processes of the EBRD? As a former litigation lawyer, I always hate the word fiduciary duty because it carries with it, to my mind, the idea of fiduciary responsibilities and putting the person for whom you act as a fiduciary ahead of yourself. But in the context we're speaking about, Article 8.1 of the EBRD's founding treaty says, the resources and the facilities of the bank shall be used exclusively to implement the purpose and to carry out the functions set forth in Articles 1 and 2 of the treaty. That is the bedrock for the idea that EBRD's money may only be used to achieve its mandate. And then in the context of donor funds, because the EBRD spends its own money, but it also receives donor money to spend, then generally it undertakes to its donors that it will use the same care in the spending of their money, the money they have entrusted to EBRD, as it takes with its own money. So A, we're only going to spend EBRD's money on the things we're meant to spend it on, and B, we'll apply the same standard of care if we're given donor money with respect to that donor money. And Rowan, did you have anything to add? I think as an investigator, what distinguishes us from our peers and other MDBs, as Paul mentioned, that upwards of 80% of our work is in the private sector. We don't become as involved in procurement and procurement-related investigations, which is probably the bread and butter of other MDBs. And we're much more governed by the relationship we have with our private sector counterparties. And that has different aspects to it and it does influence how we undertake our investigative work. Turning to you, Alex, we've talked about a number of multilateral development banks and other international financial institutions on this series. And in terms of its structure, how does the EBRD compare to these other IFIs? These large banking international organisations, collectively referred to as international financial institutions, and within that, there's a subgroup, if you like, we can refer to them as multilateral development banks, however one wants to divide and label these institutions, there are a number of differences between each that are subject to this podcast series. So in other words, they don't all sit evenly alongside each other in terms of what they do and how they operate. Firstly, there's a distinction between their geographical scope, global, like the World Bank, versus regional, like the EBRD, versus sub-regional, like, for example, the Nordic Investment Bank or the Black Sea Trade Development Bank. There's also the investment bank status versus the development bank status. The businesses between an investment bank and development bank are fundamentally different. And also membership, less developed countries versus developed countries or borrowing members versus non-borrowing members. And there's also the issue of size, both in terms of the balance sheet, but also the member states. Given its private sector focus, as well as its political mandate that Paul and Rowan discussed, the EBRD doesn't at first glance fit with some of the other multilateral development banks. The EBRD's closest comparator is the IFC, or the International Finance Corporation, which is a member of the World Bank Group. The IFC is the private sector arm of the World Bank Group to advance economic development by investing in for-profit and commercial projects for poverty reduction and promotion development. The IFC lends to private enterprises in development countries and is therefore similar in its operations to the EBRD in London. So we therefore have an EBRD comparator in Washington, D.C. to try and help us uh, put these institutions together. But ultimately, they are all different. Rowan, do you think that's a fair comparison? Yes, I do. I think the big distinguishing factor between us and the IFC, of course, is, as Paul mentioned, we also have overlaid on top of that a political mandate in our Article 1. We're meant to be investing for transition to have a political and economic effect on society. And I understand the IFC, they invest mainly for poverty eradication. If I can bring your attention more directly to the sanctions framework at the EBRD, Paul, how does it operate as a whole? The sanctions framework at the EBRD is a two-tier sanctions system, and it's governed by what EBRD calls the Enforcement Policies and Procedures. 
which is a policy approved by the EBRD's resident board. Sitting under that enforcement policies and procedures, which we call internally the EPPs, there is a further layer of administrative regulation procedure on constructive notice. And both are available on EBRD's website. If any of your listeners want to have a look at them, that's ebrd.com. And if they then navigate to who we are and then to integrity and compliance, they'll see these various documents listed off to the right-hand side of the page. For our listeners' benefit, those have been linked in the show notes. So if you go back to the platform on which you are listening, you'll be able to find links to those documents there. The enforcement policies and procedures then are the bedrock for sanctions and debarment at the EBRD, and they're informed by a series of intra-multilateral development bank agreements, which are also available on the EBRD website. In order, they would be the uniform framework for preventing and combating fraud and corruption, followed by the agreement for mutual enforcement of debarment decisions, then the general principles and guidelines for sanctions, and finally, the MDB harmonized principles on the treatment of corporate groups. So these various intra-MDB documents represent what the MDBs have agreed amongst themselves that they should try to do in their treatment of fraud and corruption cases. And those provisions are reflected in the EPPs, which are the documents which bind upon Rowan and me in our respective roles. Paul, what is the structure within the EBRD? It's a classic three-tier structure. The office of the chief compliance officer where Rohan sits investigates matters and if they find something's amiss, they send a case file to me as the first tier decision maker, the enforcement commissioner. I look at the case file. If I'm satisfied that a prima facie case exists, I issue accusation of misconduct to the subject. The subject then has a chance to respond to that accusation. The chief compliance officer has a chance to respond to that response. And after that, I make a decision as to whether or not a prohibited practice has occurred and what sanctions should flow from that. If the subject doesn't like what I've come up with as my decision, or indeed if the office of the chief compliance officer doesn't like what I have come up with as my decision, either can appeal me to appellate committee. And again, in the appellate committee phase, it's a de novo hearing of the material based on the record which has been established at my first stage level and the decision of that appellate group is final. How is that second tier comprised? It's a committee of five people. Three are external and nominated by the president and then approved by the EBRD's board. And two are internal, nominated directly by the president. One of the external members is the chair and is to sit in every matter which goes before the appeals committee. Are the decisions at both stages public? No. My decisions are only available to the subjects and to the board of EBRD. However, decisions at the appellate level are made publicly available, as well as being made available to the subjects. What's the test for evidence that's applied? At both stages, it's a more likely than not level of testing. So it's not beyond reasonable doubt, it's a lower level than that. And we don't apply formal rules of evidence. The terms we use then under the EPPs are slightly different for the same person. Once we're trying to send all of the material to somebody, we call them a subject. Once they've received the material, we call them a respondent. So although I've spoken about subjects up to now, I'm going to talk about respondents from here on out, but I'm talking about the same entity. you're responsible for the first stage of this process, the investigation. Where does your role within that office sit? At EBRD, the investigation phase of the sanction process is solely the responsibility of the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer, which we call OCCO. As with the other MDBs, it's a completely independent function. It's independent of the operational departments of the bank, and we have very wide discretion on which matters we pursue for potential enforcement action and how the investigation is undertaken. We don't have to react and investigate all complaints received. We receive complaints from various sources, most commonly from losing tenders in public sector procurement processes or internally complaints from EBRD staff in our private sector matters. It's important to note that at EBRD, we commence investigation exclusively on a reactive basis in that we first need a credible complaint received by us of an allegation of prohibited practice. Other MDBs were aware they do more proactive work to try and uncover misconduct or sanctionable practices 
um, that have not otherwise been reported, but we don't have that function at EBRD. Important to note also that the investigation process has to proceed in a manner that is fair to all parties. We take great care to building the common due process controls, such as someone being accused knows what the accusation is and has full opportunity to respond. At EBRD, being a predominantly private sector, we rely very heavily on contractual rights that are contained in our financing agreements, including the so-called audit and inspection rights to pursue an investigation. In fact, other than through contractual rights, we have no ability to demand documents or obtain witness testimony. So these contractual rights are very important to us. What do the contractual rights allow you to do? With our counterparty, we've entered into financing agreements. And under the clauses in those financing agreements, they oblige our counterparties to provide documents that we demand and to make available witnesses for testimony. Um, and so if we do have an allegation of prohibitive practice, we do an initial assessment, then we'll go to our counterparty and we'll start listing documents we will require. We can also point at external experts such as auditors to go in and audit our clients and to see whether they have complied with the prohibitive practice clauses as well. Thank you, Rowan. Paul, what is your take on these legal obligations for each party? They represent a balance between the interests of the bank and the interests of the bank's clients. I think from a legal perspective, the basis on which the bank founds its ability to run the EPP process isn't a contractual basis. It comes out of our fiduciary duty that we discussed earlier and the fact that the bank's money may only be used for authorised purposes. Notwithstanding that, we do want to be sure that the prime recipients of our money are aware that the transactions into which that money flows may be subject to the rigours of the EPPs if there's an allegation. Important from a legal perspective because our contractual relationship as the EBRD is generally with our investee. That's not to say that we wouldn't want to investigate some of the subcontractors or contractors to that investee who are typically the ones who could be engaging in fraudulent and corrupt practices. As Paul explained, he is the first year adjudicator and he is completely independent of the investigation process. The Enforcement Commissioner has no influence on what or how we progress a matter. Generally, the Enforcement Commissioner's role only starts when the investigation process has ended and he first sees the investigation report and the materials. He's not generally aware of the case or what we are doing until such time as we deliver that material to him. Thank you, Rowan. Alex, you've been involved in processes like this with various MDBs and involved with work for the EBRD. How has the risk for accused entities and individuals changed over the years? It's common for companies to focus their resources on domestic regulators, anti-money laundering and perhaps traditional US, EU or UN sanctions. But this is, however, often at the expense of the international regulator, if I can use that term, uh, such as the EBRD. So firstly, the risk of debarment by the EBRD or any other IFI is only part of a much wider and often little understood exposure. Since cross-debarment, which was introduced in 2010, and publication of sanctions, I mean, Paul mentioned that the uh, sanctions committee decisions are published, uh, and including here the context of settlements, even though they're not published, there may be a press release adverse effects of debarments increase. And again, Paul mentioned the standard of proof here is not beyond reasonable doubt. It is not the criminal standard. It is a much lower standard of on the balance of probabilities. Now, beyond that, the EBRD debarment list is adopted by major list compilers, such as the World Check database. And major banks, therefore, have access to this information. So we're going from the international regulatory perspective to domestic. As a result, it can be difficult to obtain finance if an entity is on the debarment list, causing obvious widespread difficulties. And national development agencies also see this information, and there are increased risks of criminal referrals. The impacts on audit and compliance is in turn complicated as a result. The EBRD is well aware of the impact of its debarment decisions. And that in itself has contributed to the strengthening of the checks and balances in the system. Paul mentioned the mixed internal and external membership of the enforcement committee. But before those changes, it was internal. So the impact and the effect of the EBRD sanctions regime has encouraged EBRD to strengthen its system because it knows the impact it can have on external entities. And those risks, I said at the beginning, are often underestimated. Thank you, Alex. 
Paul, you spoke about your part in the first-tier decision-making body, which is where you sit. How has this body developed and changed shape over the years? Rather like people, it's expanded slightly over the years. Initially, we had a one-stage system from about 2008 to about 2015, and that was an internal committee, and they examined very few cases, something around 7 to 10, I would guess. And then in 2015, we introduced the EPPs, which, as we've already described, is a three-tier system where... ARCO investigates, I make an initial decision, and my decision then is subject to appeal. The role I have within the EPP is quite wide, so I have several jobs. One job is to look at incoming departments from the other MDB organizations and determine whether or not, based on those debarments, EBRD will cross-debar the people whom the other MDBs have debarred. EBRD also has its own primary debarment system, which Ron has already explained where ARCO investigates so on and so forth. But EBRD may also debar on the basis of third-party findings where a court from one of our members makes a determination that somebody has engaged in something that would amount to a prohibited practice if analysed under EBRD's EPPs. In addition to those direct debarment proceedings, it's also possible for the office, the chief compliance officer, to ask for a subject to be suspended while the office is undertaking investigations. So during the period of suspension, the person or the entity being investigated won't be eligible to receive EBRD funding. And finally, if the office of the chief compliance officer wants to undertake a settlement agreement with a subject, they have to get the enforcement commissioner's approval for the terms of that settlement. And finally, within corporate groups, you find that there's restructuring or takeovers. And so a question sometimes arises whether or not a particular company which was debarred should continue to be debarred after it's been taken over by somebody else or changed its form in some way. The enforcement commissioner at EBRD also gets to decide on that. We refer to it in the EPPs as anti-avoidance, but the best name for it might be the scope and treatment of corporate groups. What are the steps for making a debarment decision? If we look at the debarment based on an ARCO investigation, for a debarment which follows from an investigation by the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer, I receive a draft notice from the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer explaining why they think a prohibited practice has occurred and sending me the evidence upon which they've based their determination. I look at that notice and the evidence and I decide whether or not on a prima facie basis the case is made out. And if it is, I send it to the subject. If it's not, I send it back to the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer and I say, I don't think a prima facie case exists here. Notice of the case, which I send to the subject, is then examined by the subject who gets a chance to make a reply to provide evidence if they wish to. That reply and that evidence then gets sent on to the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer who also gets to make a reply, but generally doesn't add additional evidence. If they did, that evidence would have to go back to the subject, so the subject would get a chance to have a look at it. There's a possibility for additional submissions to be made at my discretion. And after all of that, I make a written decision. That's sent to the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer and to the subject. Either of them may appeal my decision, though so far no appeals have been made by anybody. Well, that's interesting to know. And what about if we're looking at a third-party finding? A third-party finding is a final judgment of a judicial process which has occurred in a member country of the bank or a finding by an enforcement of similar mechanism of an international organization which is not part of the, the MDB groups which we've already spoken of. And the finding in either case is that an individual or an entity has engaged in a prohibited practice or an equivalent act in that member country or international organization. So in those circumstances, the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer typically sends me a copy of the judgment involved, which is the evidence, and a report to say why that evidence is to show uh, the occurrence of the sort of prohibited practice that would be sanctionable under the EPPs. Again, I apply the same test to that as I would to an investigation. Is a prima facie case shown? And if it is, then the same process follows. The subject gets a chance to respond. Office of the Chief Compliance Officer also gets a chance to respond and I go on to make a decision based on all of that input. If I could ask you about the end of the process where you're looking at making a decision about department, what factors do you take into account and how does that influence how long you might debar for or what other options you might look at? 
Well, I have a very wide range of factors under the EPPs, which I'm required to look at. I need to look at the egregiousness and severity of the conduct of the respondent, the degree of involvement of the respondent in the prohibited practice, including whether that conduct was active or passive, the magnitude of any loss caused by the respondent and or the damage caused by the respondent to the EBRD, the past conduct of the respondent involving the prohibited practice, if such exists, respondent's attempt to become a bank counterparty, that's to say to have received money from from the bank, despite the imposition of a suspension under the EPPs. So all of that is on the negative side if you're a respondent. On the positive side, though, if you're a respondent, I'm also required to look at mitigating circumstances, including the extent to which the respondent cooperated in the investigation run by the Office of the Chief Compliance Officer, and whether that cooperation has substantial benefit for EBRD. If a respondent has already been suspended for a period, I'm allowed to take that period of suspension into account. And quite importantly, from a wider perspective, I'm also allowed to look at the implementation of programs by the respondent which are designed to prevent and or detect fraud and corruption. And finally, I'm allowed to look at any other factor that I think is relevant. That last point is quite wide. Quite an important factor for me when I'm trying to align what I'm doing under the EPPs with what the bank has agreed that it will do institutionally with the other MDBs. Paul, having taken those factors into account, what outcomes are there available to you? A whole slew of different outcomes, which we try to calibrate to the circumstances of every case. Formally, we view them as two different things, a series of enforcement actions and a series of disclosure actions. And on the enforcement action side, I'm entitled to reject the award of a proposed contract to a respondent. I'm entitled to cancel a portion of bank finance which would otherwise flow to a respondent. I'm allowed to issue a formal reprimand to a respondent. I can either debar a respondent for a particular period of time, or I can debar a respondent with a conditional release. That's to say you are debarred unless the release circumstance happens, or I can issue conditional non-debarment. That's to say you're not debarred, but only if you do particular things. Additionally, under the EPPs, I'm also allowed to require that a respondent makes restitution to the bank or to another party in an amount representing the diverted funds or the economic benefit which the respondent obtained as a result of having committed a prohibited practice. Going to the disclosure end of things, we mentioned previously that my judgments generally are not disclosed to the public. But what would be disclosed to the public in all circumstances is the fact that a debarment has been made if the debarment was for a period greater than one year. So if you look up the EBRD website, for instance, you will see there listed all of the debarments in excess of a one-year period. And of course, if a respondent appeals my decision, then the decision of the appellate committee will be published in its full form and available on the website. But so far, nobody has appealed, and therefore there are no appeal decisions available. perspective. Rowan, what are the types of cases that the EBRD are investigating and bringing to Paul or his equivalents? Not surprisingly, because the MDBs have more harmonised prohibited practices or sanctionable practices, the types of matters we actually investigate are similar to other MDBs. But as we concentrators have said on the private sector, the majority of our caseload is associated with our private sector operations rather than allegations associated with public sector procurements, which is more typical of what you find in other MDBs. I think while it's fair to say that no two cases are ever the same, our private sector cases often fall into one of three buckets. They either involve clients who have made misrepresentations to the bank in order to obtain EBRD finance, usually about their profitability or their balance sheet strength, or clients that have undertaken related party transactions in a deceptive manner, which has caused value of the bank's loan or equity investment to be diluted because the economic worth of the entity has been taken away from it in an artificial way. Or our private sector client has paid bribes or facilitation payments to advance their business interests. That is probably good for their business, but it's not good for our reputation, which we need to protect. We regularly receive complaints also from our corporate recovery team, and these concern our bank clients who are in financial difficulties 
and who have then undertaken inappropriate actions to try and resolve the situation or unfairly protect the equity owner's investments. Some examples we've seen are selling the key assets, diverting the sale proceeds to private accounts, or entering into fictitious transactions related parties with the business owners to try and get the economic worth to them that remains in the business before it is liquidated. It's interesting to note that in 2020, EBRD significantly expanded its lending volume and also changed the sort of business that it did in response to the COVID crisis. And we started providing new types of finance, such as liquidity support to key infrastructure projects, supply chain finance, and we also entered into a whole lot of repayment deferrals. These were kind of novel for us in investigation. So the first thing we had to do was work through all of the agreements to make sure that we obtained sufficient investigation rights as the audit inspection right that I mentioned earlier, and also make sure that these rights flowed right down to the end beneficiaries of our loans and our, our support. Um, we've yet to see any COVID-related complaints, but we do view most of our COVID-related response to be particularly high risk for fraud and corruption. So we expect it's only a matter of time before we start seeing a complaints prohibited practices in relation to those matters. The EBRD accepts complaints prohibited practices from any source, including anonymous sources, if anybody ever has a concern about a prohibited practice associated with EBRD or our activities, if you go to our website, ebrd.com, at the bottom of every page, you'll find a tab, Report Fraud and Corruption, and that will allow you to easily report the matter, which will be reached by my office and then be assessed. Again, for our listeners, this link is available in our show notes. So, Alex, how does this process at the EBRD compare to the other MDBs that we've spoken about on this series? The sanctions and debarment systems of MDBs have evolved dramatically over the last 20 years or so. And it probably isn't controversial to say that the current best practice is to have three independent units. So firstly, the investigations unit or, or equivalent led by uh, Rowan or his equivalent that investigates and thereafter brings cases against respondents. Then the first tier decision maker, usually a sanctions and debarment officer of sorts, which is Paul's role as an enforcement commissioner at the EBRD. And then the second tier decision maker, usually a sanctions board or sanctions committee of sorts. Some of the big changes which we've already alluded to have included an all external sanctions board at the World Bank, for example. They used to have an all internal members board and publication decisions at a number of the second tiers and sometimes first tiers of MDBs. And I mentioned that the EBRD changed its own system in about 2015, where it went from an all-internal enforcement committee to a mixed internal and external. So you have the benefits of the internal experience as well as the external independence. It is therefore straightforward, I would say, to compare different models and even to rank them you want to do that on how they fare in terms of due process rights and fair trial rights. But despite these similarities and comparators, there are nonetheless, as always, differences. The size of the institution and the workload of any given unit will affect how big that unit is. So Paul, for example, is on his own as enforcement commissioner at the BRD, which reflects the workload. The World Bank, on the other hand, has an office of three or four full-time staff within the Office of Sanctions and Debarment. But despite these differences, If we leave aside the structure and the size and how many people are involved, and we look at the trend, that trend is similar across the board. Most of these units are becoming increasingly busier. There is more harmonisation and more communication between the investigations offices, between the various parts of the sanction system as a whole. And that has resulted in a more forceful and dominant effect of these entities worldwide. On top of that, many of the key players, the people who work within the offices or even who sit on the second tier, move around from institution to another, acting as a sort of muscle memory and evolving together. And that sort of change wasn't always the case. We go back far enough. There is also another dynamic, the private versus public angle. We mentioned the IFC as a good comparator, and the IFC has its own sanctions and debarment officer, but compared to the World Bank's one, they aren't very busy. But despite its similarities in work and role with the IFC, the EBRD is busier. So it's shown that despite the private angle, private-facing lending, it is busier than its comparator in DC. And lastly, the number of debarred entities does not accurately reflect how busy various units are. Lots of work is done behind the scenes. So it is quite right to take a debarment list as one indicator. It would be wrong to look at it and think that office isn't very busy and therefore I'm not going to be scared of them because they don't seem to be doing much. That doesn't reflect the reality. So the days of ineffective 
smaller, weak sanctioning entities are all but gone. And even the smaller units and or those that were traditionally quiet or had the reputation of being quiet are today very active. And this in turn increases that risk that I was talking about earlier for corporates. Thank you, Alex. During this exploration of the MDB's anti-corruption efforts, we've talked a great deal about sanctionable practice, and in particular, the harmonised practices, those which most MDBs sanction. But the EBRD considers a wider range of activities to be sanctionable. So, Paul, what practices are sanctionable by the EBRD? We have the four harmonised practices, that's coercive practice, collusive practice, corrupt practice and fraudulent practice. Additionally, at the bank, we have a misuse of bank resources or bank assets committed either knowingly or recklessly by a respondent. Um, We have theft, the misapplication of property belonging to another party. And we have obstructive practice. Now, obstructive practice is also common across various of the MDBs, but it's not a harmonized practice yet. Within the EBRD's scheme, obstructive practice could mean any of destroying, falsifying, altering or concealing of evidence, which impedes the bank's investigation, making false statements to investigators in order to materially impede the bank's investigation, failing to comply with requests to provide information in connection with the bank investigation, threatening, harassing or intimidating a party to prevent it from disclosing its knowledge of matters relevant to a bank investigation, or materially impeding the exercise of the bank's contractual rights of audit or inspection, or access to information, which Rowan has previously alluded to. Rowan, are investigations into all of these seven sanctionable practices evenly split, or are investigations into some more common than others? Like the other NDBs, I would say three quarters of all our investigations are into fraudulent practices or misrepresentations. If you lie to the EBRD and you lie in a material way, the bank takes that very seriously, especially if it's associated with our finance. That said, corruption is by far the most serious of the prohibited practices. We're very concerned about the pernicious effect that it has on society and on the bank and our mission. And we'll always really resource an allegation of corrupt practices very well and make sure that we do undertake a comprehensive review. The two prohibited practices, which are somewhat novel to EBRD, theft, misuse of bank resources and assets, we really introduced them to counter what we saw as more wrongful activity associated with our private sector operations, which we didn't think were fully covered by the harmonised definitions. We haven't had a lot of use for them, although we do think that they are a very good general deterrent to have in our agreements. Thank you, Rowan. Alex, in your view, do these three additional sanctionable practices show a proactiveness on the part of EBRD in tackling corruption? In a word, yes, Alice. It's easy to just copy the World Bank, copy and paste the entire sanctions procedures and move on. By going beyond the traditional four or five prohibited practices, the EBRD has deepened its toolkit, if you like, and given some thought as to what it needs to fulfil its mandate. Rowan just mentioned understanding its mandate has influenced what it needs to include. Private loans, for example, Sometimes you need to look beyond those traditional four or five, which had their origin in the more publicly facing sort of work. There is a better example, I think, illustrating the proactiveness on behalf of the EBRD. But Paul's already gone through it, so I don't need to go through in any detail. An imposition of a sanction on the basis of a third party finding is unique to the EBRD. And maybe that's one of the other IFIs catches up soon. But it just shows that that hasn't been copied and pasted from anywhere because it's unique within the regimes of MDBs. And it allows sanctions to be imposed, subject to all the conditions, on the basis of final judgment, thus avoiding the need for OCO to conduct an internal investigation. So it actually makes a lot of sense. This isn't unique to the EBRD, but it's worth pointing out the word reckless. Criminal lawyers will fall off their chairs if they don't know this already. But In the context of MDBs and their sanctions regimes, the act of fraud can take place on a reckless basis. So not only is it balance of probabilities, the civil burden for a respondent entity to be found culpable, but on top of that, you don't necessarily have to prove the traditional intent. Briefly, Alex, if I may, the test for recklessness in EBRD's world at least specifically excludes mere inaccuracy of information supplied or misuse committed through simple negligence. Simple negligence wouldn't amount to recklessness. It has to be something slightly more than that to trigger our thought of recklessness for these purposes. Yes, indifference as to certain outcomes can still be enough, so still falls short 
of the traditional intent. But yes, not just any recklessness will do, of course. And here we try to achieve a balance. It's not a criminal process. It's an administrative process. earlier about the end of the process, the sanctioning itself. But there are situations in which, Rowan, you would be involved. So thinking specifically about settlements and conditional non-debarment, how do they sit within EBRD's political mandate and how does the process work? Yes, Alex talked a little bit about the effects of being debarred and how it can have a quite dramatic effect on your ability to obtain finances and it can have repercussions that you might not expect. I think it's worth bearing in mind that it's not designed to be a punitive process. The process exists primarily to protect our financial and reputational interests. So we're not going out to punish respondents. We're going out to protect ourselves. And consistent with that process, the MDBs have agreed and issued the general principles and guidelines from sanctions, which is a document which you'll find on our website. These guidelines can table mitigating circumstances that can reduce an enforcement outcome from debarment to conditional non-debarment. And bearing in mind, we have to make the recommendation to the enforcement commissioner of what the outcome should be. He is free to reject it, but we at least have some persuasive influence. So for us, the three most important mitigating factors that we look for are assistance and cooperation with an investigation, an admission and acceptance of responsibility for what has occurred, and corrective measures to prevent the sanctionable conduct from reoccurring. Picking up a point on what Alex said about how broadly we see misrepresentation and attribution, we are always faced with the defence of a rogue employee and that therefore these actions should not be attributed to the larger corporation. We will accept that. You need to come back with very good and very demonstrable internal controls showing how they were able to be circumvented. And if you don't have them as a corrective measure, we'll require that you instigate them pretty quickly if you wish to get any credit for that. When a respondent can demonstrate these three mitigating factors that I mentioned, we will usually consider recommending to the Enforcement Commissioner an enforcement outcome of conditional non-debarment. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free by any means. It will usually require external assistance to review your processes, conduct a roadmap of what is required, and will usually require a oversight by a compliance monitor. And we just won't accept any old monitor. We'll expect someone with experience in the compliance world, usually a very qualified corporate lawyer or corporate advisor who's done this previously. We have rolled this model quite successfully in various countries, in Ukraine, Latvia, Turkey, and Egypt, where our clients have all undertaken these compliance reforms following an EBRD investigation and have been actually able to remain our clients despite engaging in quite egregious practices. No case yet as a client that has undergone this reform of conditional non-debarment and having an external monitor appointed re-offended. We don't have any cases of recidivism yet, and we think this is a good sign that our comprehensive reforms have been effective. And this really feeds back nicely into our transition mandate. We wish to keep honest players, honest companies on the straight and narrow that we can do business with and they can help develop the countries we operate in. Thank you, Ron. Paul, how do you feed into this process? In a settlement context, I'm required to satisfy myself that the settlement is appropriate. So I need to find firstly that, in fact, a prohibited practice has occurred so that there is jurisdiction under the EPPs, both for OCO and for me to interpose ourselves in what's going on. And also I try to ensure that the level of output in terms of sanction, no matter what that sanction turns out to be, is commensurate with those factors which we discussed earlier in the process. Um, Obviously, if a subject or a respondent is involved actively in cooperation and putting in place measures to stop bad things happening in the future, that resounds to their credit and is reflected in the terms of the settlement and properly so. I mean, if we were in a John the Carey novel, for instance, we're not out to shoot spies, we're out to turn them because what we want to do is to ensure that things improve. The transition to a well-functioning market economy occurs and fraud, corruption, all of these various prohibited practices are inimical to that outcome. So the measures which we take, which prevent those things happening, those are all good things from our perspective. Paul, I assume the reference to John O'Carey had nothing to do with the EBRD's political mandates. Absolutely nothing, Alex, nor indeed to the wall or any of those things. (laughs) Paul, would it be accurate to describe sanctioning, and indeed investigation, as being more of a rehabilitative intervention? 
the outcome of the EPPs is not intended to be punitive. It's made quite clear the expressed purpose of the EPPs is that enforcement actions and disclosure actions are intended and shall primarily seek to assist a respondent and its affiliates to address deficiencies in control or compliance functions that may have contributed to the occurrence of a prohibited practice, and or to reduce the bank's operational and reputational risks in carrying out bank projects with the respondent or any of its affiliates. So it's a two-pronged purpose. It's to improve the respondent, but it's also to protect the bank in line with the fiduciary obligation. And Rowan, how does this play in when you come to look at settlement agreements? In an ideal world, of course, we wouldn't have to have prohibited practices or sanctioned practices and settlement agreements. And settlement agreements give us a nice mechanism to be able to resolve our differences in a very administrative efficient way where we can recognise in very concrete terms what the respondent entity has done to alleviate or to mitigate the prohibited practice and that we can settle our differences in a way that allows both parties to move on and to resolve fully the issue. We don't have carte blanche when entering into settlements. We need to put them before the enforcement commissioner and he is bound by some conditions and rules. But we do look to achieve an outcome that is beneficial to all parties. It would be fair to say that most of our settlements have actually been on the private sector side where we've had a direct relationship with the counterparty. And I think this is because we understand that counterparty very well. They haven't just applied through our public sector procurement route and we know who they are, we know who we're dealing with and we can have these frank conversations with them and get them thinking about how they could best resolve this in a way that we can continue to work with them. Settlement always required an acknowledgement and admission of responsibility as well as a dedicated discipline roadmap to improvement, usually overseen by an external party. Thank you, Rowan. Paul, as a condition of your agreement or your oversight, what is the process that you enter into and when might you consider a settlement agreement to be appropriate? In this context, I'm mostly reactive. The officer's chief compliance officer will put forward a settlement agreement to me for my approval. And at that stage, I examine the circumstances of the case. Is there jurisdiction? Whether or not a prohibitive practice has occurred, try to assess what the appropriate sanction would be and then discount it back for any of the mitigating factors, which will typically be wrapped up in the settlement agreement in terms of proactive actions, which the respondent is going to take in order to demonstrate that they have reformed or are in the process of reforming and want to continue that process. What about when a settlement isn't reached? What are your views on that circumstance? Well, that's a bit unfortunate, but if life happens like that and it's not settled, then it just runs the usual process. A settlement isn't reached. I determine what the sanction should be. And if the chief compliance officer doesn't like it, or if the respondent doesn't like it, they can always appeal my decision. And Rowan, what circumstances arise for your investigation purposes when settlement isn't reached? Well, first of all, we'll always try and settle a matter. We'll always try and reach resolution for a settlement agreement. But even when we can't, We do expect our counterparties or our clients to engage with us during an investigation. They're contractually obliged to do that. We expect them to cooperate, to agree non-contentious facts or facts that aren't an issue, and to work with us to help resolve the matter. If they're obstinate or obdurate all the way through and they just don't want to work with us, that is quite an aggravating factor for us and will lead to a substantially higher debarment period. It's also not keeping in terms of the privy of contract we've entered into with them, where we expect them to cooperate to resolve these differences. We have not been able to settle some matters because there are key differences that we just haven't been able to resolve and we had to through Paul's enforcement commissioner. But in most cases, we've at least been able to agree a common facts to put to him. And that has great efficiencies in the process. I was just going to interject here that in terms of numbers, I've processed something in the region of 28 cases, all told, since 2015. And about seven of those have resulted in settlements. And does it affect the time to resolution by a significant amount, Paul? Yes, very much so. In terms of a case comes to me, I examine it, it then goes to the respondent, they respond, then the chief compliance officer, the chief compliance officer responds. You know, in a complicated case, that can take something in the region of two years and a settlement can make that whole process much, much quicker because effectively it strips out all of the argument over the causative stuff. The other element here is that if somebody respondent has entered into a settlement with the bank, it is highly indicative of their desire to improve. So it goes back to the purpose of the EPP, which is to effect improvement rather than to terrorise our respondents. 
Rowan, what about from your perspective? Are there significant time savings from entering into some form of negotiation or settlement agreement? It very much makes the process much more efficient to conclude and does so in a non-adversarial manner, which allows parties to best resolve their differences. And as Paul said, although we may not get to a formal settlement at the end of the day, but at least we can agree the facts or narrow down to what is actually in contention. That too makes a huge difference. Although we had a settlement in the minority of cases, there are very few cases which every single fact has been contested before Paul. So we do look for these efficiencies and, and frankly, it's the only way we could operate given our resourcing. And on that note, we're almost out of time for this episode. I'll just ask you all for your final thoughts. Ron, if I can start with you. EBID does have a comprehensive investigation and enforcement process that we think is fair and contains due process rights. Ideally, this process should only be used as a last resort where there is no other or better way to protect EBID's financial reputational interests. And while we would very much prefer prevention rather than cure when responding to allegations of prohibitive practices, I think the enforcement process will remain an important tool for EBID to respond to fraud and corruption on our program and will be around for a while longer doing this work. And Paul, what are your final thoughts? I think it's important to place the enforcement process within the context of the bank's mandate. You know, our job as a bank is to assist or foster the transition towards open market orientated economies and to promote private and entrepreneurial activity. And prohibited practices are inimical to both of those aims. From time to time, we get asked, why is it that you guys are interfering in this manner? Isn't that something for national authorities? And that brings us back to our fiduciary duty point and also to the other question. If not us, who is going to do it? And if we're not going to do it now, when is it going to be done? And if we don't do this, then what else will be done? Very true. Alex, what is your final message for this episode? Understanding the MDBs and their respective sanctions regimes is key for any respondent, but it's not always enough. Uh, Alice, you started off the episode mentioning that we would look at the slightly unusual case of the EBRD. If we've learned anything today, it's that IFIs and MDBs, despite their similarities, and there are lots, remain very different. And a thorough understanding of the specific MDB's procedures is even more important than understanding the global system as a whole. And if you are unlucky enough to be pursued by more than one MDB, then you're just going to have to understand all of them. Unfortunately, that's the end of our time with the EBRD. Thanks to Paul, Rowan and of course Alex for their contributions to what has been a very informative episode. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Please do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giants series, where we are joined by the representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.